Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast, where we discuss all things GRC. Um, we need to be realistic in, in what we're trying to achieve in this, you know, in this area, and trying to eliminate slavery through through the entire supply chain, which could be three or four, five tiers. It's not going to happen in the short term. It's more working with the suppliers, engaging with the suppliers, and trying to work out what is your exposure to that to that supplier. Welcome to the GRC Professional Podcast. My name is Kwame Slusher. I'm the editor of the GRC Professional Magazine. And today um, we have with us, after a very long time, is Julian Hun. Julian, how are you doing? Morning, Kwame. I'm going well, thank you. Yourself? Uh, not too bad. So just to remind our listeners on the podcast of who you are, can you just talk a little bit about yourself and a bit about your experience? So I've been in the financial crime compliance space now for about 25 years. Um, at this point, I'm consulting. So I consult to, um, to Deloitte as a director. Um, also do some freelancing work uh, with other large organisations as well. Background, um, mainly a practitioner. So I've been obviously in the, in the industry for probably a good 15, 20 years of my life. Um, more recently, I'm obviously acting as a consultant. Um, over that 25-year period, I've, um, I've practised and been... Um, in, been in um, multiple jurisdictions, uh, namely Europe, the UK, uh, Middle East and Asia, and the last 10 years in Australia. Oh, excellent. Well, thanks for that quick introduction. So anybody who has been attending our GRC events over the last couple of years would have heard you speak a bit about modern slavery, um, amongst other things. And I thought it would just be a really interesting time to revisit that, um, since we're actually in the midst of working on a bit of a modern slavery series on the podcast. So I get the first question I would ask um, in terms of the Modern Slavery Act is, do you find that businesses who are being captured by this act are prioritizing compliance in this space? Look, it's a good point, Crowley. Um, really difficult to say in Australia at this point because it's still early days. Yeah. Um, but if we, can, if we can look at our colleagues, certainly in the UK, because the UK um, Modern Day Slavery Act is very similar to Australia's, and similar requirements. So what we've seen in the UK over the last three to five years is um, a number of well-known NGOs have, have reviewed uh, the, the top 100 companies in the UK and reviewed their statements. And it's, it's, and it's fair to say that they found that a, a very large percentage of those statements were still found to be non-compliant uh, about 12, 18 months ago. So to me, that suggests that... Um, and, and, and this is obviously questionable, but, but I would argue, is there still a tick box mentality um, out there? And, you know, we are talking about the largest organisations in the world. You know, we're talking about the, the top 100 companies in the UK and obviously, you know, the large companies here in Australia. Now, that could be an unfair comment, but I would argue from the research I've seen over the last 12 to 18 months, there's still a tick box mentality where they're, they're meeting the requirements at a very high level, but even in some cases, they're not even meeting the requirements in the statement. So very early days here in Australia to, you know, to say if that's accurate or not, but certainly looking at historically over the last three to five years in the UK, um, I would argue that many organisations are still treating this as a, as a tick box and not really truly, not really going out of their way to, um, to ensure it's being um, fed through the operations and they're, you know, acting accordingly. Now, that could be an unfair, unfair comment. Now, I do know some companies are doing very well in this space, but according to the NGO research, a large percentage are not doing well, even in the statement stage, which, which, would, which would, to me, suggest 
operationally um, unlikely they're actually meeting those those requirements. So I, I guess using that example um, that you used there um, and about that tick box mentality in the UK context, um, could that be a little bit because the penalties or the consequences are not large enough for those organisations? Um, look, I think I think that's I, I certainly think that's there's an aspect of it. I also think there's probably regulatory fatigue. I mean, obviously there's an awful lot going out there going on at this point in time. You know, if you look at slavery, you obviously need to look at bribery and corruption. You obviously need to look at sanctions, and you know these are these are obligations that all organisations need to meet. Um, not just financial institutions. So th- th- there's a lot going on. So there's def- definitely regulatory fatigue. Um, but to your point, you know, the fines and 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 obviously much of the um, enforcement is more is more is more reputational. It's a, it's a slap on the hand. Um, but but I would argue it's not the government that's taking this approach. I would argue it's the NGOs. You know, the NGOs are calling out these companies and basically saying you're not behaving correctly or you're not considering the, you know, the, the risks through your supply chain. Now, interestingly, on that point, I would argue what we've seen quite recently is probably more impactful than actually the government or the NGOs, and that's all around ESG investing, so sustainable investing, ethical investing, etc. So ESG is very, very topical. Obviously, it refers to economic, social and governance. Requirements, and this is something that's really—it's been around for a long time, but it's really taken off in the investment space. And what I mean by investment space, I'm talking about ethical investments. So I'm talking about um, you know retail funds, institutional funds, um, basically just looking at responsible investment in a, in a lot more detail now. And they're using metrics within their investment portfolio, um, to, you know to establish if these organisations are indeed complying with ESG. So for me, that's a really valid point because it, it does go back on reputational, but it also goes back into shareholder returns and it also goes back into the investment community. Because obviously, you know, there, there, is, there are literally billions and trillions of dollars out there invested in companies through, you know, pension funds, superannuation funds, retail funds, et cetera. Um, and if these investment managers are under pressure to, to conform with ESG metrics, then obviously they will make a decision in terms of their portfolio um, construction to remove companies that are not ESG friendly. Now, a large part of ESG, well, actually not a large part, but if you look at this, the S part of it, which is a social component of ESG, uh, that, that really refers to the supply chain, aspects of the supply chain. Now, there's many different areas within social, but obviously... One of the areas that, that we focus on is around the supply chain, human rights. So, so you can look at greenhouse gas emissions, you can look at biodiversity, waste management, et cetera, pollution, coal, but a large part of ESG is around human rights. Now, as we know, human rights is a very, very broad area, but within human rights, you, you would argue it's, it's around slavery, the health and welfare of employees, et cetera. So that's, that's particularly around the supply, supply base and the transparency of their supply base. So not just employees, but also around their third parties and, and their supply chain management. So I sense that put aside the regulatory requirements and put aside to some extent the NGOs, I, I sense where we're going to see the most impact, impactful area in terms of organisations complying and being good corporate citizens is going to be around the ESG concerns. Um, so that's, that's probably where the focus will be over the next six or 12 months. Um, certainly, 
if you look at some of the retail funds, they're now building ESG metrics specifically into their portfolio. So they're removing companies that are not ESG friendly. And if I try to put an example of that, if I think of an example, China, for example, around the Uyghurs, um, you know, the Muslims obviously in, in parts of um, China. Now, the argument is from the international community, the Red Cross and various other uh, well-established well organisations is that they are that they are being abused in terms of um, human rights groups and they're being um, forced to obviously um, to, to, um, to pick cotton. Now, that particular area in China is, you know, it's like 20, 30% of the world's cotton comes from that particular area. So what we've seen over the last probably 12, 18 months in, in that example is we've seen many of the large, larger fashion brands such as Nike, Adidas and Gap come under significant pressure from rights groups and also from institutional investors, basically making it very clear to them that, that they are facilitating uh, somewhat proceeds of crime through their supply chain, which obviously um, slavery is, a, is an aspect of, of, um, of criminality. In, in some jurisdictions, and if these large organisations are, are obviously benefiting from that, then that, that doesn't look particularly well, uh, or certainly not highly regarded amongst uh, both retailers and, and institutional investors. So in summary, I would argue the ESG component is becoming more powerful, certainly more powerful and more influential than the government, and to some extent more than the NGOs. But obviously the NGOs are, are pretty much behind this ESG um, a push. Okay, excellent. So I guess we can get into a bit of, a, I guess, practical side of things. Um, so in a recent interview, I was speaking to a technology provider um, in the sort of AML and modern slavery space. And one of the ways that they talked about gathering the companies who are interested in complying, of course, uh, gathering information on their, their supply chain and their third party relationships is via questionnaires. Um, and I guess this would be obviously a very carefully constructed type of uh, instrument, but is that the best way? And are there other ways that you can gather information about your supply chain? Look, and this is this is one of the most difficult aspects of, of obviously trying to establish transparency and identify your supply chain and, and the risks within the supply chain. Obviously, you know, and, and I've mentioned this numerous times, the risk assessment in the, um, the risk assessment in terms of identifying where those risks sit in your supply chain is absolutely key. So it's one thing building a risk assessment, but obviously you need metrics, you need data to establish where to focus your attention. So look, there's a number of ways of doing it. There's obviously public information, which, you know, which you can obtain, obviously a desk-based review, but that's, that's not always particularly easy because obviously... Many, many of the organisations in supply chain are not, not public and they're not very transparent. And um, certainly when you start to move into the, into the second and third tier, they're more than likely going to be emerging, emerging markets. So, so the desk-based review is limited. You can certainly perform um, questionnaires. And um, that would be one of my recommendations is, is obviously that's a, that's a relatively easy way to get out to your suppliers. Um, but keeping in mind that depending on the size of the organisation, you are going to find many of those suppliers are not going to reply to you or, or return those questionnaires in a, in a um, timely manner. Uh, the other one is obviously the, the physical audits. Now, I do know many organisations rely on the physical audits. And, and when I refer to physical audits, this is like a company in Australia appointing a third party in Asia to go in and kick the tyres 
you know, in in that particular factory to make sure that 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 organisation is complying. Now, what, what many companies are doing is they're they're building in the requirements around slavery and bribery within their existing requirements around health and safety. So that's that's a relatively easy exercise to do um, to start it off quite quite thin and then just gradually build it out. So, but obviously the, the problem with the audits over the last eighteen months, two years, is obviously COVID. So getting physically in there to perform an audit it has been pretty much non-existent, especially in parts of Asia. So the only other way at this point, the only effective way is obviously those questionnaires. So building a, building a questionnaire that's relevant and not, not too cumbersome because that, that's one of the problems I've seen in that, and that's one of the major downfalls I've seen is that some of the initial questionnaires out to the suppliers for the risk assessments are very, very cumbersome, trying to address everything. So it's just it's, it's trying to focus your attention on, on the suppliers and obviously your risk assessment will dictate where you should focus your attention. So if you've done an, if you've done an appropriate risk assessment, you will establish which suppliers are located in, in which high-risk jurisdictions. So for example, we know China, India, Malaysia are high risk from a, from a slavery perspective for technology and various other aspects. So that's where they should be focusing their attention. The next step is to work out what is your exposure to those suppliers. Now, the best way of doing that is obviously understanding their, uh, you know, the revenue, the expenses, et cetera. So w- what compliance professionals need to do is they need to get their hands dirty and obviously reach out to finance and various p- and procurement and various other departments within the organisation to establish what their exposure is. Obviously, if you have, a, if you have a, say, a $1,000 exposure to a company in China compared to $10 million or $100 million, clearly you should focus your attention on, on the large organisation. So... But most of the data will be there for you to perform the risk assessments and, 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 and basically for you to focus on those questionnaires, but you will need to do some digging. And that's not particularly easy for compliance professionals because obviously you have to liaise with other departments. And as we all know, data is pretty poor as well. So it's performing the risk assessment, identifying the jurisdictions, identifying the exposure to those respective suppliers in terms of monetary exposure, and then writing a risk assessment to then send out. Um, obviously, the more exposure you, you have to an organisation, the more influence you'll have on an organisation. So, for example, if, if you're dealing with one of your largest suppliers in China, um, and they're obviously dependent on you as a distributor or whatever in your, in your home jurisdiction, such as Australia, they will need to go out of their way to comply with that questionnaire and complete that question. Otherwise, you would de-risk them and find someone else. So that's where you have the influence on the larger suppliers. In terms of the in terms of the questionnaires, as I mentioned earlier, you can build the questionnaires up over time. But what I have seen is some organisations are really overcomplicating the initial questionnaire. Um, we need to be realistic in, in what we're trying to achieve in this you know in this area and trying to eliminate slavery through through the entire supply chain, which could be three or four, five tiers, is not going to happen in the short term. It's more working with the suppliers, engaging with the suppliers, and trying to work out what is your exposure to that to that supplier and what is their exposure to the second, third, and fourth tier. Now, all those questions, um, all those areas I just mentioned should be in the questionnaire at a very high level. So you're looking at the jurisdiction, you look at the industry, you're trying to understand what are the risks and vulnerability with the industry, the goods and services, then obviously you can do that through the risk assessment, but also all the data you collect through your systems, which is basically the both procurement but also finance. 
Um, some some technology firms are doing really well in this space. And I know a couple in Australia that are working at, at an industry level, which to me makes a lot of sense. So rather than just dealing with one company in, say, agriculture or real estate, you'll, do, you'll deal with the industry. So if you look at travel, for example, rather than just dealing with Virgin or dealing with Qantas, you'll, you'll deal with the industry itself and, the, and you'll, you'll work with the industry and the industry will work as one. And by doing that, m- most of the risk assessments and the technology that you're producing will overlap across that industry. Now, that's good for two reasons. Firstly, they're sharing information, and but, but more importantly, is they're all on the same they're all on the same level in terms of playing field, and they all have similar data in terms of suppliers. So, what I'm seeing some technology providers do is focus at an industry level, and certainly my days of fly centre, that's where I'd be focusing. I'd be focusing on the travel sector and the key parties within the travel sector and working together. Um, finding the key stakeholders at each organisation and then and then working with the um, technology provider to do that. Obviously, there is some sensitivity sensitivity around MI and financials, but if you're looking at a high-level supplies, I think that can be done quite quite um, quite efficiently and also it's, it's, it can be quite cost-friendly as well. And what's what's also really important about this is some people just focus on on, on slavery in their supply chain. Now, from my perspective... If you're looking at the supply chain, you should bring in sanctions. You should you should bring in bribery and corruption as well. Obviously, different types of risks, but very similar risks, and and, they, and those risks will overlap as well. So, if you look at Transparency International around bribery and corruption, some of those jurisdictions you're identifying as high risk from a bribery and corruption perspective are absolutely high risk from a slavery perspective. So, if you're looking at being cost friendly, if you're looking at being efficient and effective, you would actually build out a questionnaire. That that addresses all those key areas. Excellent. So that's a, a lot of stuff that you just shared there. And I guess the next question I have is, how does one get all that done while you know still existing in this remote working environment, um, making sure that your organization is complying and then getting that information that they need. Um, look, it's very challenging, obviously, in the current environment. I mean, if you look at the non-banks or if you look at you know, financial institutions trying to comply with the key aspects of financial crime, you know, and um, it's not just AML. As I say, it's sanctions, bribery, corruption, um, slavery. So I think, firstly, l- looking at those three areas, I mean, as a non-bank, helps significantly because there is, there is overlap. I think identifying an owner to take responsibility for that uh, but also, more importantly, is, is identifying the key stakeholders within the organisation because compliance, to, because they just don't have all this information available to them around the financials. So it's trying to identify the key stakeholders. But look, this is not going to happen unless you have top-down top buy-in and support from senior management, which goes back to the whole ESG factor. The way to pitch this as a practitioner <clears throat> or as a compliance officer is not, well, we need to tick this box for modern slavery. We need to, um, you know, the, the way to pitch that is, you know, we're looking at ESG. We know many of our, we know many of our investors out there, institutional investors, are building ESG metrics, you know, into their, you know, into their, um, into their analysis. So, a very good example would be like Flycenter. You know, Flycenter for me was <clears throat> was really pitching around the benefits of Flycenter to society about making the public aware of child trafficking and of child orphanages. So that's more powerful 
as a message to senior management to get buy-in and support, focusing on more the, um, you know, those social aspects as opposed to saying we now need to comply with the Modern Day Slavery Act or the Modern Slavery Act. It's bringing the ESG elements in. And CEOs and boards are very, very conscious of the ESG impact on their organisations now. All right, excellent. Well, I think we're going to bring this podcast to a close. And as we always like to do, we like to get some final words. So any, I guess, words of wisdom for those professionals who are just trying to get this piece right? And I know you've been giving this advice throughout, but maybe we could do like a quick summary of that advice you've already given. Absolutely. So <clears throat> first advice is obviously be, you know, be practical, practicable and, and also sensible in terms of what you can and what you can't do, you know, with, with the, um, you know, the time and resource you have available to you. One of the biggest mistakes I've seen in certainly in the slavery space is trying to do too much too quickly. Um, the government, the NGOs are very conscious that you are not going to eliminate slavery risk throughout your entire supply chain, depending on the industry and sector you're in. The most important thing is being really realistic in your statement, being, being honest and not overselling yourself, because if you're overselling yourself, it becomes pretty obvious, I personally think, when you read a statement. And more importantly, you are leaving yourself open to scrutiny. You're leaving yourself open to scrutiny from the government, but also the NGOs and also ESG analysts out there. So be honest, be open. You're not going to eliminate risks. It's about managing risk. And this is what financial crime and just general risk management is all about. It's about managing and mitigating the risk. It's about reducing that risk. And it's about building controls and systems around managing that risk. So do not believe you have to eliminate the risk over the next couple of years. It's all around risk management and it's all around applying a risk-based approach. Now, I know the risk-based approach is focused more around the AML space, but obviously a significant overlap into these other areas as well. So identify where the risk is via risk assessment and focus your attention on that risk. Now, that's not to say that there are no risks in Australia around slavery, because there absolutely is. But you would focus your attention on, say, the likes of China, Malaysia, um, India for technology, and maybe, you know, cotton and, and those sort of areas. But obviously, be mindful of the risks in Australia. So to answer your question, we're not going to eliminate the risk. That's not going to happen in the short to medium term. Uh, engage with your suppliers, work with your suppliers. And thirdly, as, I, as I've said for many, many years, the risk assessment is absolutely key. If you built an effective risk assessment, that should, be, um, that should definitely be defensible um, from a regulatory as well as an NGO perspective. And that will also help you dictate where you channel your resources and your attention in terms of mitigating those risks. And to your point earlier, um, Kwame, don't forget about technology. There's some really good technology providers out there and they can help you with much of this, um, much of this work. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time this morning, Julian. No problems at all. Thank you, Kwame. This podcast was a production of the Governance Risk and Compliance Institute and the music was produced by Rob Neary.